Welcome to the Healthy Habits for Life podcast. I'm Dr. Carol Perlman, a psychologist, health coach, and married mom of two boys. I went from a frazzled working mother who hit snooze until the last possible moment to a vibrant business owner who jumps out of bed at 5 a.m. excited about my day. I once felt completely overwhelmed by my endless task list, but have learned to work smarter, not harder, by studying health habits, mindset, and time management. I love to teach others how to implement top recommendations for health, happiness, and success. Yes, busy moms can follow a nutrition plan that supports their goals, create a daily exercise routine, and stay on top of their to-do list, and go to bed feeling fantastic about the day. Tune in each week as I share my best strategies for creating and sustaining daily habits for a healthy lifestyle, and chat with other experts in the health and wellness industry. Now on to this week's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Healthy Habits for Life podcast. I'm Carol Perlman, and thank you so much for joining me today for another episode. So as you know, if you have been a listener to the podcast, or if you are new and you read the title, Healthy Habits for Life, what we cover here at the podcast really are a broad range of topics that all pertain to the theme of creating a healthy and really happy life. And that can encompass many different themes. I've covered a lot of them in the past couple of years. And today we are going to discuss one that hasn't been addressed in the topic, and yet it ties in so well to this mission. And we're talking today about keeping up with medical appointments, but not just keeping up with them, but really making sure that you advocate to get out of your appointments what you need from your medical team. It can be difficult. This can really be difficult to navigate, but we're going to make it much more doable today. And I have a wonderful guest with me, Susan Salinger, who is going to teach us all about it. So welcome, Susan. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad that you're here and so happy to learn from you as my audience will as well um, about this really important topic. So let's share a little bit about you. Let's get to know you. So tell me about the work that you've been doing and how that has cued you up to the work that you are doing now. Well, originally, um, I've made, I was in business with my husband and we uh, wrote and produced corporate training films on time management and sales training, customer service. Anyway, we sold the business and I retired and went back to school and took some anthropology classes, mostly because that was the, that was the only classes I could get into. And in any event, I learned a lot about women's health. And that really, um, I, I learned things that I hadn't known. And I really learned that academics tend to write for each other. And I thought to myself, I'm learning stuff that really needs to get out there. As women, I don't. I feel that we don't always do enough to take the best care of ourselves that we can. And I think that some of this information is so important. And I wanted to share it. And I wanted to know how women make medical decisions and how we handle the decisions we do make. Um, I interviewed about 50, 60 women and did a lot of research and just extrapolated some of the things they had in common. And I was surprised to hear, to, to find that they had a lot in common, even though they had all had different or most had different diseases. Mm -hmm. So quite a bit of work and really interesting. It's so true that 
um, this is maybe a stereotypical statement I'm going to make, but I think as women, we tend to be caregivers. And right. so we very willingly take care of the people that we love and the people around us. But it, when it comes to taking care of ourselves, we are often burdened by many barriers such as guilt and different or competing priorities that can, even though we might intend to make different decisions when it comes down to it, it can make it very hard to make the best decisions for us. So what a noble mission you have been on to learn more about these patterns and then make this information available, you know, outside of, as we say, the ivory tower and make it available to all. So we should mention that you have a book. We're going to talk about this um, much more. You have a book called Sideline, How Women Manage and Mismanage Their Health. And so that I imagine is the culmination of your research and yeah. all of this work. So we will get to that. So tell me, what have you learned in studying women and their health behaviors? What have you learned? Well, I just to bounce off what you just said, the first thing I learned was that we really don't take good care of ourselves. In fact, it was, you were talking about how we put ourselves last, and we do. There was a research study done, and they gave women a list of five things to prioritize. You know, what did they think was the most important? And the, the first thing we take care of is our children. The second thing we take care of is our pets, then our elderly parents, then our significant others, and last, and I hope not least, ourselves. And I would like that list to be reversed because I think that we have to put ourselves first because otherwise we're not in, in good enough shape to take care of everybody else. And I think that by putting our, our health on the back burner, we do our families a disservice. It's like um, the oxygen mask on the airplane, right? They've been telling us that for years. Exactly. Why, aren't, why aren't we listening? No, exactly. And as a matter of fact, there's an example in my book of a woman who, uh, had a mammogram and was asked to come back for a second opinion and a second a second test and she couldn't go she had no child care and it was raining and her husband was out of town etc so she put it off and put it off and of course ended up with you know stage 3 breast cancer so i mean it's really not a good idea to put your health last <laughs> there was another study and i mean this one is not funny but it does amuse me where women who were pretty sure they were having a heart attack this was in Canada, actually. And rather than call 911 or whatever the Canadian equivalent is, they one, one woman laid there for 24 hours before she called. She didn't want to disturb her family and upset everybody. Another woman laid awake all night because she didn't want to wake up her husband because he worked hard during the day and she knew he needed to sleep. I mean, things like that, which when you hear, you think, well, I would never do that. But you might be surprised. You yeah. really might I don't I doubt it. I mean, th those are pretty dramatic examples. And I bet on a, a little micro level, we make similar choices like that all the time where we bump our own needs because we don't want to put out someone else. Well, and, you know, it's it's funny, funny, peculiar. But as I was writing this particular chapter and, and was looking up that particular research, I got the stomach flu, which is something I'm very vulnerable to. And I get it frequently. Only this time, I was sort of lying on the bathroom floor, and I just I felt clammy. And I've had it. I've had the stomach flu at least once a year, and I never have felt clammy. And I thought to myself, "Am I having a heart attack?" So here I am, the writer of this book, lying on the floor, didn't want to wake my husband, didn't want to call my kids, 
I mean, my kids are adults. Didn't I didn't want to upset everybody. And I thought, well, it'll get better or it'll get worse. And it fortunately got better. But I could have killed myself because what yeah. I didn't know is when you have a heart attack, what you have about four hours to, to get treatment before you do serious heart damage. So I really could have done some damage. Yeah. So you you can relate to how it is that women might be tempted to make these exactly. decisions. And we're really trying to bring some awareness to the importance of making different decisions. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's just so important as I, you know, I keep saying not to put yourself last. So that was the first thing I found. And then the other thing I found that very really surprised me is the amount of shame that some women feel about being ill and about becoming ill. So many of the women I talked with thought it was their fault and they really blamed themselves. They all they really all blamed their illness on stress and their inability to handle it. So when they got sick, they saw their illness as almost a, a, a public announcement, public manifestation of their inability to manage their lives. They completely, uh, in their thinking, they completely omitted like the randomness of illness. I mean, some people get COVID, some people don't. You know, it's that simple. Um, illness is frequently random and a question of good luck or bad luck. Uh, but most of the women I talked to really felt responsible for being ill. And that, that interfered with their care. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. As a psychologist, I, I, I'm sure you would find that interesting. And I did, too. And I was surprised. I don't do that particularly. I get angry when I'm ill. I get well, you know what? Off. Now that you say that, um, you know, one thing I do know as a psychologist is that, you know, we as human beings want to make sense of our world. And that's a very primitive need, a, a primitive re reflex, so to speak. And so when something happens that's very confusing, we try to you know make it logical in some way. And from a very early age, kids, unfortunately, tend to blame themselves because that's kind of what they know. They don't right. have enough awareness about the world and other explanations. So they tend to blame themselves. And now at least it makes sense. Oh, I did this or it's my fault. And so that's why this thing happened. And so maybe there are some early origins to that. I think there are. And I think that to a certain extent, self-blame is, if you blame yourself and you think you know what caused your illness, you say to yourself, well, I know I was overstressed. So I know if I don't get overstressed again, this won't happen to me anymore. Mm. Which is what you're saying is a sense of control. Yeah, it makes you feel more in control. It yeah. Makes, yeah, it gives you, a, it, it answers the, there's a universal question when people get ill, which is why me? And mm -hmm. it helps answer that. Mm -hmm. And that, that, truly that question goes across cultures, which I found very interesting. Yeah. Ironically, um, I won't take us on a big tangent, although I could. <laughs> um, I'm sure you're familiar with the book, When, when Bad Things Happen to Good People. I am. Right? by Rabbi Harold Kushner. So he happened to have been the rabbi, the rabbi at the temple where I belonged as a child. And he passed this week. I don't know if you had seen that. I didn't know that. He passed this week and his funeral was yesterday, actually. And um, I attended virtually. I was very grateful to have that opportunity. And so there was a lot of mention, of course, of the work that he did and the books that he yes. wrote and the ways in which he tried to help people address these really difficult questions. Why is this, you know, why is this bad thing happening? I'm, I see myself as a good person. Why is it happening? So I think it's human nature. We struggle with that and we want answers. And he provides some really comforting words and paradigms. If you're ever interested in this, I'll leave the, 
the some of his books in the show notes, but he does provide um, not e- not even necessarily, you know, from a Jewish faith. You don't have to believe in the yeah. Jewish faith necessarily, right. but I think he provides some universal words and paradigms that help us. But to your point, yeah. we can't help. We as humans can't help but ask these questions: Why is this happening to me? And we get into trouble. You're saying is when we jump to conclusions or we we come up with explanations that in the end are not helpful, may not be true, but are certainly not helpful to blame ourselves. Well, and they're particularly, that particular one is particularly unhelpful because many of the women were too embarrassed to call the doctor because they were so sure the doctor was going to say, well, look, you know, you're you're just all stressed out. You're a stress case. And they didn't want to hear it. And they felt they didn't want to take up the doctor's time with something that they felt was an embarrassment and and they weren't they felt they weren't good enough and they didn't want to take up the doctor's time yeah. with, that, <laughs> with that issue. I wonder what the doc I don't know if you had a chance to interview any physicians, but I wonder what they would say in response to that. They would I'm sure that I I did not interview any physicians, but my educated guess, and it is a guess, is I think they would say, please call. Because yeah. what happens when you delay is that a little problem can easily become a big problem. Yeah. And you're doing yourself a dis- a, again a, a real disservice. Yeah. I know as a as a clinician, I always say, you know, one of the important parts of the work I do is assigning homework and so people always have something to work on in between our meetings and I always say I would much rather that you come in if you didn't do it, I would much rather you come in and let's talk about what happened rather than, you know, avoid me and don't come right. in. And then we can't make any progress. So I, I imagine that other caring professionals would yes. feel the same. Yeah. I think I really do. Yeah. So can we, can we talk about, you know, we're at this place where fortunately we have access to a lot of information and it's a blessing for the most part. It can be a curse yeah. at times, but, you know, we have the ability to do a lot of our own research on various medical problems And so on the one hand, we have the ability to go into our medical appointments prepared and we have some information, maybe some or some questions or, um, you know, topics or solutions we want to address with the doctor. Um, what, What did you learn about women's preparation for appointments and their comfort and confidence in making sure they go through all of their questions in their notes? I learned that there's a variety of things women do and don't do. Uh, It was individual, it was personal. But I think what I really want to talk about in response to that is is the first thing I want to say is be sure if you can, to the best of your ability, go into the doctor appointment prepared. And this is really important. I really recommend, I, I heartily recommend that you have a written list of your symptoms that you've prioritized. And I say written, don't don't just have them in your head. If you're like me, you get so anxious when you go to the doctor that they're going to fly out your brain somewhere. Yes, we get all flummoxed oh, once we're there. Absolutely. So I always, particularly, you know, this book has helped me too. And so I always go in with a written list. In fact, I was on a, the show with the doctor a couple of weeks ago, and she said she loves it when patients come in with a list that's written out because that way she also reviews the list. And she told the story of what happened to her was a patient 
had a list of symptoms. And as she was, as the doctor was leaving the room, the patient said, oh, incidentally, I have a mole on my back. Well, of course, to the doctor, that was the most important thing the patient had said. So, you know, she came back in and yeah, if it was melanoma or whatever. But if the patient had had a list, the doctor would have zipped into that first thing. Mm. So that was, that's my first recommendation is go in with a list. And then when you're there, I think it's really important to try to get the clinical name of your disease. And that's because I think it's so important to do the research. Like you said, be, be prepared. If you can't, you don't, you may not know what you have before you go in, but after your visit, you'll have some idea. And I, I think it's really important to do the research. And just a quick selling point that my book at the back of it, there's a big resource list. I've done your research for you. It tells you how to find the right doctor, the right hospital, where to go to get information about your disease. I worked hard on that. And I think it's really, really helpful. That sounds fantastic. Also important, and tell me if we're running out of time, but okay. As I think it's also important to repeat back what you heard in your own words so that you know you understood what the doctor said and that the doctor said what he or she meant to say, mm -hmm. sometimes to speak. And I think that that's a very important thing to do. It gives the doctor a chance to confirm any misunderstandings. And a, an important sidebar of that, and this blew me away, only 15% of women will tell the doctor when they don't understand something. That means that 85% of us are leaving the doctor's office with either no idea or maybe only some idea of what was what transpired. So there you go on that one. And then last but not least, I think there's some really good questions to ask. And don't even ask me about second opinions because that's my that's my real cause. But you, you really want to say to the doctor when you get a diagnosis, what else could this possibly be? It's, you know, there's about 20 to 30, maybe even 40,000 diseases out there. And those are only the ones we know about. So for the doctor in, in their defense, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack because so many of the diseases share similar symptoms. So you go in and you say, I'm tired and I have no appetite, et cetera, et cetera. Th those symptoms can fit so many diseases that the doctor's just guessing. So I think all of that will really help you get a clear and, and accurate diagnosis. Women are misdiagnosed more often than men by 20 or 30 percent. And that's substantial because you don't want to accept and take a treatment for a disease you don't have. Now, why so, do you think that is that women are misdiagnosed more? Ah, that's another that's another rant. Um, those are about really four, four good reasons. Number one is women's diseases get less research than men's diseases. Mm. Prostate cancer gets more research money than cervical cancer, uterine cancer, and and those two are are more fatal. But yet, prostate cancer gets the bucks. Uh, secondly, women researchers are offered less less grants, less publication. So. They're, they're, we're published much less often. And not only that, but women's diseases are more difficult to diagnose, particularly autoimmune diseases, which we're about, we get about 80 or 90% of the autoimmune diseases, you know, women suffer from mm -hmm. the majority of the disease holders, if that's a word. Um, and so our, it can take five years to get an autoimmune disease diagnosed. Yeah. So I think that's another reason. And women were omitted from clinical trials for years. Now, that particular segment of the um, is much better. 
women are definitely more included than they used to be, but we're still living with that unfortunate history. Yeah. But you know, if you're a woman researching a woman's disease, you're going to uh, you're going to find yourself at the bottom of the funding and publication barrels. And I think that that's one reason is that women are misdiagnosed more often as we know less about women's bodies. Mm -hmm. That's um, so discouraging. Yeah, it is. It is. It's getting better. I really don't want to, um, particularly we are included in clinical trials now. It's pretty equal, not 100% equal, but, you know, close enough. Um, but yeah, it is discouraging. And eventually, the other problem is too, a lot of the research on women's diseases focus on our reproductive systems. And we do have other issues. I mean, we're not just a walking uterus, you know. That is very true, yes. I don't know if you had this on your list to mention, but it just reminds me of one other tip, um, kind of to your point that we sometimes clam up once we get to these appointments. And so that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why writing down all your questions and symptoms is helpful. But I find that especially for big appointments, if you have something really big going on, it's really helpful to have another person come to the appointment with you. Yes. And I left that out. That is on my list. If you're at all like me, I mean, I can't hear. I get so anxious. I really, I'm, I'm one of those that just don't hear it. It's not physiological, it's psychological. Um, but I always try to take somebody with me for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And they can, they can be silent. They can just take notes. They can maybe prompt you. Do you have any questions? They can help you find your voice if you might be reluctant to use it. And I know there are services. My father has, uh, I know he was volunteering for a program where he would, um, well, he would take people to medical appointments. I guess he didn't do this part, but I think there are other programs where you can have someone sit in with you there and take too. notes. And right. um, yeah, so that can be a really another helpful strategy. Yes, absolutely. And just for a quick minute, I'd like to talk about second opinions. Okay. <laughs> My allergies are acting up this morning. Uh, second opinions are critical. Number one, because women are misdiagnosed more often. And so I think it's really important to get a second opinion. And women really hesitate to do so. You know, we don't want to be rude. We've been taught to play nice. We've been taught just, you know, it's not our place. And, we, and then one woman actually said to me she would never get a second opinion. She didn't want to be labeled a bad patient and have or a difficult patient and have that put on her chart. Mm -hmm. And I think that we that's, I think, because women frame a second opinion as a confrontation, as a conflict. And I, it's not that way. You want to confirm what your doctor has said. And most doctors that at least my personal doctors, because I've always gotten second opinions, um, will are happy to do so. Because as I mentioned, there's so many diseases out there. For the doctor, it's a, a diagnosis is a perception of your particular doctor. And we all see what we expect to see. And there was an article about how it looked, what stress, a, a symptom can look like stress to a psychologist or stomach gastrointestinal issue to a gastroenterologist, a joint issue to a rheumatologist. So you really want to make sure, again, that you're diagnosed correctly before you begin any kind of a treatment. So there's a whole section in my book about how to get a second opinion. And I think you'll find that most doctors will not, um, they, they will help you, not, not harm you on that. Yeah. And if they don't help you, find another doctor is my advice. Seriously. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, a really excellent point. So, you know, I um, I always... <laughs> 
I try to maintain an upbeat outlook. And some of what we've talked about today is a little discouraging when we put all of these pieces together. So I wonder if you and I can take a positive spin from this and end on a note of empowerment. So one thing I always like to ask people to do, I mean, sometimes people are listening in their car, so don't do this if you're driving. But (laughs) if you find this to be very relevant, listen again to this episode at a place where you can sit and take some notes. And one thing that I want to recommend people do is that you think about what you can implement when you hear about some of these forces that might be working against us. um, You know, we can't all implement everything. We can't overhaul, overhaul everything all at once, but we can work on it step by step. So can you pick two things of the topics that we've covered today? Can you pick perhaps two things that you would start with as ways that you can advocate for your health a little bit better and you can prioritize your own health and medical needs a little bit better? That would be my tip for today is, you know, can you take two of all of these excellent tips and really focus on implementing those. Do you have anything else that you would add as a way to feel optimistic as we listen to all of this today? Yes, actually I would. Um, I I think that we can't change some of the things that we talked about. We can't get women more funding money or, you know, research money or whatever. But what we can change, modify, alter, whatever word you want to use, is our own behavior. And that's what my book is about. We are in complete charge of our bodies, ourselves, and our health. And to me, that's a really positive message. It allows me to make a list when I go to the doctor. It allows me to do my own research. It allows me to determine whether I'm going to get a second opinion and where I'm going to get it. Um, and and that's, that's a really important thing I just said, because, for example, some hospitals or doctors specialize in cardiology. Some doctors and hospitals specialize in neurology. I mean, you want to make sure you're in the right place. Yeah. So my first message is, for heaven's sake, don't be discouraged. It's your body and you need and want and will benefit from taking charge of it. And I and, think just, yeah, I'm sorry, go on. Well, I wanted to point out um People may not know this from just listening to this interview today, um, but you are living this day in and day out through your small habits. And so we yes. didn't mention your age. I don't know if you want to mention that, but can you share? Can you share what you shared with me about how you live this day in and day out, and how and why and how you benefit from it? Oh, I would love to. First of all, well, I'm 80 years old, and I'm still and I'm in perfect health, or really very good health. I'm knocking on wood for you. Thank you. And I mean, it's good genes and good luck and it's not going to last forever, but it's also good health habits. It really is. I've worked out for about 40 years and I think it has really paid off. In fact, if anybody's interested, you can go to my, I have a a TikTok and yeah, I guess it's TikTok. I don't think it's Instagram. Gram and dot gains. And that's me. I love it. Gains, And you will see me weight lift. I'm I'm very strong. It's all, I'm this little old woman. I'm very short. And you can't even tell because I'm sitting down here. But when you see this little old woman, I, I can lift 50, 60 pounds. And that's pretty good for me. That's and incredible. It, I obviously just published my first book. And I'm going to I'm writing articles and going to start a second one. I mean, life is really can be really good at 80. And I think it's so important for those of you that are in your 40s, 30s, 50s, 60s, whatever, to to start forming good habits because it will pay off. If you're lucky, it really will pay off when you're older. 
Um, and people told me that when I was 50 and I didn't believe them because, I mean, I was figured, I mean, the idea of ever being 80 was unbelievable. Right. So I, I have one final question for you. So what, what kind of got you on board when you started this habit 40 years ago? What was it that really woke you up and said, oh, I really am going to do this? Something very specific, which is, excuse me, I got a diagnosis, I'm so sorry, of osteoporosis, and and I still have it. I've ma I managed to stabilize it, but I was told when I was in my 40s that I had to be really careful stepping off a curb because I was going to break some bones. And that frightened the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, my gosh, I hope to live to 80 or 90, which seems so far away at that time. So I, that's when I started working out. And I kind of got into the weightlifting. I like it because, you know, you start at five pounds and then you go to 10 and then you go to 12. I mean, so it's, it's I feel like I would get an A on my essay. You know, it was it's like, very measurable. Your progress is very measurable. And now I do Pilates. I do weightlifting and Pilates. I do Pilates three times a week. And I just weightlift now for about a half hour a week, maybe an hour at the most. But I think the I just had a new bone density test. And I mean, it has it has not improved, but it has definitely stabilized. And that's huge for me. Just huge. Incredible. So that was that was my motivation. And it has really paid off, I have mm -hmm. to tell you. And I eat well. I do. I watch my diet. Um, do you have any final tips for anyone who you know, maybe is hearing the wake up call today and saying, oh, my goodness, I want to benefit from good health down the road. Any other final tips or wisdom you would share? I think just try to make some time in every day. And it's so easy for me to say because I don't have any little kids at home. You know, it's just me. But if you can make some time for yourself during the day, during the week, I think it will be really rewarding. Go for a walk. I find that I do a lot of my thinking when I'm walking. It's interesting if I have a problem, even with the book, I, I would take a walk and I came home and it was solved. I, I don't ask me why. I have no idea. Well, there's re we know why. So there's research that talks about this, about increased creativity during exercise. And I find this all the time. In fact, I often pull over. I often stop when I'm walking and write notes yeah. in my phone. I get ideas for the podcast and I write the whole outline when I'm walking. Things just all of a sudden yeah. become much more clear when you're exercising. Yes. So we do we do know yeah. why. I've had that happen. So, and I, I didn't realize, I mean, I could see it happening, but I didn't actually, I've never researched it and I probably should have, yeah. but I find it extremely beneficial. Yeah. If you can't walk, do, do what you can do, but try to do something. Well, that's, I think that is a great note to end on, Susan. I thank you so much for this very thought provoking conversation today. And we will put the uh, information for your book. It's called Sideline, How Women Manage and Mismanage Their Health. And so we will put the link for that in the show notes. Any other locations where people can find you online that you want to mention? Well, you can get the book wherever books are sold. I mean, Amazon has it. My website is susansalinger.com. That's S-A-L-E-N-G-E-R. And I'm happy to answer any questions or whatever. Um but just you can get the book anywhere. And of course, I highly recommend it. I'm very proud of it. Uh, you must be. This is excellent work. So thank you for thank you. a bit of a wake up call today for all of us. And it's been a pleasure getting to know you and having this conversation. So thank you so much again for joining us today. And thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. And thank you all to everyone listening. Thank you so much for being with me for another episode. And I'll be back next week. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Healthy Habits for Life. 
If you loved today's episode, please follow me on iTunes and leave a five-star rating and review. These are so important and will enable others like you to find this podcast. Also, please share this podcast with your friends you know would also love it so we can get the word out. Thanks again for joining me. Until next week.